0: Russia has been attacking Ukraine overtly since 2014, but even before that, has sought to influence politics in Ukraine through propaganda and information warfare, corrupt agents and assets. But this war turned into a full-scale invasion in February 2022. Of course, Western technology and weaponry has played an important role in helping Ukraine to resist, but also homegrown technology, techniques of resistance, and strong self organizing initiatives have all helped turn the tide from being an underdog to become a capable and formidable opponent. Today, I am speaking with Denis Gurak, an innovator and technology entrepreneur, about how Ukraine is becoming a tech powerhouse and how this is contributing to their resistance and victory. Denis Gurak has worked with both industrial juggernauts and small technology ventures. His specializations are in biotech, aerospace, and security industries. Dennis is Chief Executive Officer of ADAM, Advanced Development of Additive Manufacturing. He has a passion for developing world-changing tech ventures, but is also highly active in several think tanks and NGOs. He is also interested in geopolitics and accomplished at public speaking. Dennis, I'm really pleased to welcome you to the channel.
1: Thank you, Jonathan, for inviting me. It's a pleasure.
0: That's it's an absolute privilege. And I'd like to start off really with the technology venture that you are involved in mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, I know it's quite a complex subject, but could you talk a little bit about what you're doing, uh, the origins of it, and, and how you're bringing that technology to market?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a complex subject if you go into technical details, but if to try to explain it in layman's terms, we want to do something like Westworld, but in practice, uh, in actual clinical practice. So imagine someone has an injury and uh, they need a transplant of, of their tissue. Um, currently, the supply chain of human tissues, the whole logistics of transplantation, is uh, really outdated it, it happens like it used to happen 50 years ago so what we want to do we want to uh, we are working on establishing a global infrastructure of printed uh, printing of human tissues on demand in hospitals so basically we're a platform for cloud manufacturing of human tissues we're starting with bones with bone implants um that will and We're starting with that because technology for that exists and it's quite easy to prove the model how we want to do it with bones and access the market much faster than with, uh, let's say, organ 3D printing. But um, ultimate idea is to be able to print human organs on site. So basically think of it as like um, car shop-like infrastructure for human body
0: um yeah So we're going going from transplants grafts and and uh what is basically a very mechanical kind of process that requires a donor human and you're looking at industrializing that whole process and does that remove the requirement for donors do you develop these tissues based on say sort of samples or genetic material from the patient themselves
1: Mm, yeah that's one of the layers um The Yeah, so you're absolutely right that this is an approach of industrial manufacturing of human tissue. So what we have, we have a proprietary technology developed by Ukrainian engineers in 3D printing of uh, bioactive bone implants. So they mimic the structure of the bone and have uh, bioresorbability and biodegradability features. What it means is that they are dissolved over time and bone grows instead of it just replaces it the same principle can be used for soft tissues and there will be next in our pipeline so human skin blood vessels heart valves uh, that that is also possible within the nearest future let's say within five years Uh, they are the uh, similar concepts and similar things are on the market currently Um, so we don't we're we're not reinventing the wheel what we're doing is we're repacking it in a way that it's scalable and makes sense because organ 3d printing has been in place for quite some time actually uh the first 3d printed organ was uh, done in 1999 and that uh, that was a human bladder and the patient still walks with it but the problem is uh non-scalability and all that comes with this uh Innovation makes sense when it's uh, getting you a cheaper and better product. If it's a uh, more expensive and uh, longer delivery product, then it doesn't make sense. So what we're doing, we're going to shrink time for delivery of implants, of orthopedic implants from a few weeks to literally one day. And we're going to shrink the costs depending on the size and shape of the implant from three to 10 times that that's the uh, those are figures for us market which we are planning to tap as as, uh, as, a, as a as a priority
0: market and is this very much a sort of ukrainian innovation and most of your development team uh, ukrainian uh, and, and of course the obvious question is how has the war affected you know where they're based and, and how they work mm-hmm.
1: yeah it's fully ukrainian innovation it is an engineering team with uh, Aerospace and medical backgrounds uh, that most of which lives in Odessa. So we have eight engineers in Odessa currently. Uh, we've been working on this for three years now. It all started with a ceramic 3D printer, which they've assembled for actually aerospace application. And during a Techstars accelerator in US, the medical application was discovered And because of my background in uh, medical regulation in Ukraine, I used to uh, work for Ukrainian FDA and had the adaptation of uh, worldwide standards into Ukrainian law. So that's how it all came together. But uh, going back to your question, um, team is fine. Fortunately, everyone's safe. Everyone is like any other Ukrainians they are involved in helping our army. So... Few folks are volunteering because we have surgeons in the team. They're obviously working with uh, uh, wounded soldiers. And uh, well, from the company point of view and from the market entry point of view, we're going to first do the proof of concept in Ukraine because we initially ideated that uh, technology is applicable to wounded soldiers and civilians because of the blast. Uh polytrauma is very common, so a lot of uh, small pieces damage human skeleton, and after they're removed, there are bone voids that need to be filled, and that's how our technology plays in really well. You could print any size shape of the implant, uh, and it's not metal, you don't need to do reoperation and imagine you know 10-20 pieces that you that one patient can have. So we are happy, really, that we could contribute, you know, and we will contribute. Uh, I can go into more details how that's going to happen in Ukraine. But um, yeah, that, that's we see our kind of our mission in that as well.
0: And if you were rolling out that sort of beta process or that test process in, say, the U.S., would it be slower due to regulatory requirements? <laughs> Or is it really driven by that current need in Ukraine for the support of wounded soldiers? Is it more of a humanitarian decision that's that's driving that?
1: Oh, yeah. So um, of course there is a need in Ukraine, uh, but it, uh, what war situation brings is the ability to test out new technologies which uh, otherwise would have taken more time. So that applies not only to weapons, but also to healthcare technologies. And it's not that, you know, um, so in our case, there is, well, I'm not a regulator and we haven't received the regulatory approval uh, in US yet, but, you know, as, a, as an expert, I can definitely say it's not more risky and it's a better patient outcome than what is existing on the market. It's just that, When there is war, doctors are, you know, more prone to uh, use innovative methods. So, um, yeah, and that will itself accelerate, of course, the entry to the market for us globally. Uh, But um, what we know is that no one would be able to do this, what we can do on a scale that we are able to do and at the cost that we're able to do, of course, we're going to, provided for Ukraine at, uh, you know, the minimum costs uh, possible. Of course, we're not going to, we're not planning to uh, make money on it.
0: And of course, in normal times, you know, uh, I guess the surgeons wouldn't be seeing the extreme nature of injuries they're seeing at the moment. And of course, they wouldn't be seeing them in the sort of quantities Um so in effect, I mean, this technology is 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 at the right place, right time to deal with the horrific scale of of injury.
1: Yeah, for sure. But you would be surprised how many orthopedic surgeries are happening every day in uh, in the world. So uh, just for, to 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 drive your imagination, the US has thirty thousand orthopedic surgeons. Uh, that are doing surgeries almost you know, each of them was doing surgeries basically every day, at least one. You know? and yeah, uh, that's that, the, the the there are multiple reasons for that that such as aging population, etc. But uh, if you want to go into that detail, happy to. But of course, yeah, our priority is to build the system for Ukraine, help as much people as we can. Um, yeah. As I said, we we believe it's our mission. You know, as, as any Ukrainian, we need to do everything possible to uh, uh, make this end uh, with the least you know uh, damage possible.
0: And you're based in Odessa a, a at the moment, but I understand that you're working on a new sort of hub in Lviv. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, correct. So we have a distributed team, like uh, most of the startups. Uh, so we have the team partially on the East coast in the US. That's where I am and our engineering team is in Odessa, but the hub where we're planning to install the first printers and treat first patients will be in Lviv, um, it's called, it's called uh, there are actually two of them. We're still working out the details, which one's gonna be first. Uh, one is called Superhuman Center and another one is called uh, Unbroken Center um so because of the need for rehabilitation a part of which is orthopedics um yeah there are multiple initiatives now in ukraine to treat wounded uh, and those are thousands or tens of thousands of people so yeah um
0: and how supportive uh is the government um and do you have initiatives or coordination with with the government and are they open to the kind of technological innovation that Mm -hmm. that you're offering? Uh,
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, The government, actually it was the government that initiated us participating in in, in these projects. It was the Ministry of Healthcare. Um, Well, the good thing about Ukrainian government uh, now and. Think everyone's seen that, um, especially now during the war, is that there are a lot of uh, you know young blood, I'll say it like that, uh, really understanding that innovation helps with achieving better results, uh, both on the battlefield and in other spheres. So um, yeah, we're really happy that you know I, me personally, I'm very happy that Ukraine is helping uh, companies like ours to uh, grow uh, it's very important you know uh, as part of Ukraine's uh, global brand strategy I would say uh, which was was and still is a big passion of mine personally uh, I'm a big believer in Ukrainian technology and actually the the very idea of doing the startup in the first place was to show that Ukraine can give value to the world through, quali- through quality of its engineering, actually, and to show that such case is possible, because I believe it will have a big impact. And I'm I'm a very big believer in Ukrainian technology and, and engineering capability. I always like to say that we can engineer Death Star uh, if, <laughs> if you want to. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, it's just that no one asked.
0: <laughs> and I think that's something which I only became aware of uh, recently. Um, and that's that Ukraine had incredibly high tech engineering um, uh, infrastructure during the Soviet Union, didn't it? I mean, a lot of the advanced mm-hmm. uh, missile uh, systems, a lot of the advanced weaponry, and of course the aviation technology. Um, a a lot of that Mm -hmm. took place uh, through the Soviet period, and that's kind of carried through and and, and sort of blossomed, Mm -hmm. hasn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I used to work in defense industry in Ukraine, started working there just after the initial phase of the war with Russia started, or actually before that, in summer 2014, uh, just before the first hot phase in uh, in August. Um, So historically ukraine has been the brains of soviet union and especially in r&d so how was structured so in 91 apart from 1 million uh, army we had 1 million people working in uh, defense industry uh, 800 facilities back then all that also because well first because of the brains secondly because ukraine was a, like, at the western flank of Soviet Union so a lot of uh, capabilities were uh, here so those were mostly research capabilities and maintenance capabilities because of the war with NATO happened it would happen you know uh, here so the on the back lines you need you know factories that can repair tanks quickly just as an example but uh, most of the final assembly of fighter jets a lot of the aircraft uh, Uh, happened in Russia. It was done on purpose, not to concentrate too much capability in Ukraine, but still things like intercontinental ballistic missiles, uh, turbines, gas turbines for helicopters, planes, gas turbines for ships and for gas transport system, uh, military transport aircraft, tanks, a lot of other things. Actually, the only Soviet aviation carriers were designed and manufactured in Ukraine. Um, so I do think that we actually have much bigger leverage on Russia in terms of if we cut, if we would, and, and that's one of the reasons why Russia would have attacked inevitably, because their defense industry cannot function without uh, our capabilities, uh, such as I named for gas turbines, for, for transport aircraft Antonov, uh, for ICBMs in Nipro. So, uh, and for some reason, defense technologies function in a way that it's super hard to replicate. So, for instance, Gazprom wanted to replicate a facility located in Nikolayev called Zoryam Mashparek. So, this facility manufactures 30 megawatt turbines, like a range of turbines, but the highest one is 30 megawatt turbine. Which And and those turbines are the main ones that are used in gas transportation systems there and they weren't they they wanted to replicate the same facility they calculated they would need 50 or uh, billion or 100 billion dollars to do that and they would need to rehire virtually all that facility and all those engineers because there's just no other place in the world where there are such engineers and they figured that they don't they cannot do it and yeah so yeah ukraine does have huge capability and i think that that's our value to the world um, because you know, I think engineering is, if anything, can save the world. It, it's it's
0: technology. It's engineers exactly. Well, I mean, yeah. Google would yeah. certainly agree with you. I think <laughs> there. Um, yeah. And that's another interesting extension, isn't it? Because if you go back to twenty fourteen, the uh, the sort of more digital technologies, you know, communications industry, uh, marketing, uh, you know, web web stuff as well, and a whole host of of communications expertise that was fairly nascent, wasn't it, um, during the first Russian invasion? But that technology sector has grown incredibly rapidly in terms of size and sophistication, really over the last sort of eight eight years or so. You mean in Ukraine or global In Ukraine, yes. Especially in Ukraine, oh. yeah. Uh, like outsourced IT mm-hmm. services, you know, telecommunications and so on.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what's more surprising is that IT services have grown year on year uh, in the second quarter of 2022, year on year, like 23%. Uh, so still the industry keeps growing. And what's uh, even... Cooler is that uh, a lot of engineers from IT outsourcing companies are now starting to build their product companies. So uh, you see Ukrainian startup industry thriving. uh, Like since I don't know the last few years, there was at least double. There was double digit growth in the money uh, raised by Ukrainian startups. You have now a lot of. Actually, famous ones. Um, Like my favorite example is Grammarly. Um, Three Ukrainian founders. It's a deck core now. They are. They were rated by Fortune or by Time last year as one of hundred most influential companies in the world. So, and those such examples will keep emerging. Um, So, yeah, as you know, as a believer in this. I'm really happy to see this happening finally. And the Revolut is another one,
0: absolutely. And Revolut is another one, uh, you know, uh, revolutionising the Mm -hmm. financial services sector. And I think Mm -hmm. the interesting thing about these is that they are not—they're not parochial, are they? They have big global ambitions straight from the start. You know, they don't see just Mm -hmm. Ukraine or Eastern Europe as their market. They see Mm -hmm. the 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 entire world as their uh, potential market.
1: Uh, yeah, well, that's the main criterion for any startup. It has to be global and scalable. Uh, otherwise, VCs won't invest in it. <laughs> yeah, and for Ukrainian startups, they all actually figured that U.S. market is more preferable for them. So they, they are targeting. So Revolut is another example, like of. of EU market because in financial services, you know, it's a bit easier, but EU market is generally more fragmented than US market. So you have like 70% of startups ideating the product initially for US market and 30% for EU market as an initial target one.
0: And before our interview, you shared some fascinating articles as well that. Uh, so revenue is growing, uh, which is extraordinary, not only in times of war, but when the electricity supply is under threat, but also um, interestingly, there are investment funds and and the actual inward investment in Ukrainian tech and startups mm-hmm. is is almost undeterred by the war. that is that is growing as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, the first few months after the uh, invasion, happened uh startups were like on a certain pause because of the disruption because of the relocation need Uh, but um it's it's amazing how resilient ukrainian founders are and i'm um i'm talking to a lot of you know my peers um from other companies and i'm seeing that everyone became you know even more motivated and more active in, in doing what they're doing, uh, first of all, because of, um, you know, because of objective needs. Secondly, because of, you know, just purely psychological reason that you cannot not continue your life. You know, you cannot be thinking about the war 24 seven and you have to focus on, on, on you know, delivering uh, the result. And that, that that's the, um, very you know distinctive feature of ukrainians for some reason during crisis we are the best we are very discoordinated during normal times but when crisis hits yeah, yeah but
0: that, in peaceful times our... though not so much more <laughs> chaotic yeah. perhaps <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah 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 more chaotic for sure
0: <laughs> <laughs> um and, and, of course, we've talked about sort of, you know, mm-hmm. civilian technologies, but also since mm-hmm. 2014, um, Ukrainian society has for uh, you know, been forced to be resilient in terms of countering disinformation, in terms of developing technologies, both informational and military technologies, to, to basically survive against the onslaught of Russian hybrid warfare and, of course, physical warfare. Um, so could you talk a little bit as well about, sort of, you know, military and informational mm-hmm. uh, innovations that have been driven in Ukraine, because there's quite a, mm-hmm. an active ecosystem, isn't there?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was actually very much involved in building out that eco- ecosystem when I worked for Ukrainian defense industry. So um, what happened is that in 2014, apart from, you know, NATO advisors that started coming and training uh, you know, military people, um, there was a strategic decision made in the West, um, to start, you know, collaborating with defense industry, because in defense industry, everyone knew what we just talked about, of uh, the power of R&D. Um, so we started seeing a lot of just big contractors and various innovation agencies from various NATO countries coming and saying, Hey guys, how we can work together. And because, before 2014, uh, the system was, you know, uh, very much Soviet and very much dormant. So it always the system of any innovation was almost gone, because for 25 years no one invested in it. But for some reason, all those engineers, the, the educational system kept producing the engineers. So what we did, we basically took the methodology of U.S. Department of Defense, which was actually the methodology. Underlying methodology for any startup development, so all the innovations, methodologies came from there. All these lean startups, agile, etc. So it's all from there. So it all came from DARPA and uh, yeah. uh, the way how US decided to fight the Cold War uh, because it's it's a really efficient way to uh, you know uh, produce innovations. Uh, and what's good about that methodology actually is that. Um, the those technologies make sense, which could be replicated in civilian uh, sphere. So, like internet or like GPS or like artificial intelligence, all that was created by DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Product Agency, in the U.S., uh, with the view that it you for the military application, but to in order to, but it could have been you know, replicated and scaled in civilian sphere. So. Uh, long story short, we started working on you know, creating the same system in Ukraine. Um, because of the market size and the capacity of the government you know to invest in defense tech, of course it hasn't became, become as big as in the US. But because of the war situation, you uh, the base of uh, getting technology so-called to market yeah for the ultimate use is much faster. And it's much more creative because, uh, you know, you have different tactical operational strategic situations every day. It's a very dynamic process. And, uh, and you know, the next domain warfare is actually being tested now in Ukraine, not with, you know, highly sophisticated, not only with highly sophisticated satellite communication technology uh so-called c4 isr domain and it, that's reconnaissance uh, like reconnaissance plus uh concept you know using uav satellites you know like a uh, global uh um, you know, tracking uh and intelligence system so we could have used all that if we were us but we have to actually do have the same result with what we have available now, and so it's an interesting mix and how you know it's an interesting process that actually shows Ukrainian creativity again uh, in critical times, because you know, uh, yeah, where you so just as an example, two last uh, uh, applications that I saw. So everyone knows about these missile attacks on Ukrainian civilian infrastructure. So the government has developed an app, uh, which is called YEPAPO, which means there is air defense. Um, So what it does is that through government portal DIA, you can verify your identity and access the system where if you see a missile or a Kanekatsu UAV flying uh, over you, you can take a picture. It automatically detects your location Sends the info to centralized uh, processor, and that process that, that mm, processor sends the info to air defense, and it could predict, you know, the trajectory where it's flying. So basically, you're using decentralized uh, system and people to help air defense to work, work better. Uh, and the second one was also applicable for air defense. It's not, uh, you know, active to the full capacity yet, and it's not gonna be a popular project, but I know a few Ukrainian engineers that have developed an acoustic uh, detection air defense system, which is based on really not primitive, but very simple civilian uh, technology, but at the same time is very effective uh, to detect missiles, and it was already tested out. So that's kind of an example of how it happens. Hmm.
0: And that, that has echoes, doesn't it, of um, you know R and D in Britain during the Second World War, where a huge variety of, of sort of curious technologies were developed, um, and including radar and others. But uh, especially for D Day, you know, an incredibly mm-hmm. diverse, innovative uh, approach, you know, uh, a willingness to try all sorts of uh, strange ideas which never would have been perhaps been considered in peacetime and to also test a whole variety of ideas, some of which would fail, of course, but some which would succeed. And it's perhaps difficult going into that process to predict in advance which innovations will actually prove successful and which won't. So this war situation, uh, you know, it puts that whole testing process on steroids, it fast tracks something that would perhaps take many years in a peacetime situation.
1: Yeah, I agree with you more, especially on this angle of uh, similarity of British situation in the first years of uh, Second World War. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why Britain is so supportive of Ukraine now. Um, uh, you can even see memes on the internet, you know, comparing uh, Kiev bombings to London bombings. Uh, but yeah, definitely and we should learn from you know that that experience and there are people that are learning as we speak you know uh, of course the uh, properly trained military people do understand uh, the um you know the benefits in, in terms of you know developing the new technologies and that's how i think actually ukraine will give value to the world nato in future because we would naturally be one of the most experienced if not the most experienced you know nation in, in, in developing um, new um, new technologies hopefully you know those would the the ideology of that after the russia is defeated the ideology of that would shift you know towards more peaceful technologies you know and sustainability and uh, you know <laughs> Just uh, humanity trying to figure out how not to cease and exist and not Absolutely. how to destroy each other. Yeah.
0: And I think even when Russia, I mean, I, I'm I'm a firm believer that uh, you know Ukraine's going to win and it's going to expel Russia from the entirety of its territory. But even when the active of hostilities are over, um, it's plausible, isn't it, that Russia will continue informational warfare, hybrid warfare, cyber warfare. Uh, it's not necessarily the case at all that, that Russia will become a benign state or a good neighbor. Um, so hopefully, the technology shift will, of course, move to uh, more civilian uses. But this is where the development of, you know, counter um, counter informational um, techniques mm-hmm. and technologies come in. And of course, you know, I, f- I formed the view that Ukraine has been a leader in this sphere for a number of years. Yes, we have Bellycat and we have several other you know, Western concepts that are doing very well, but actually the methodologies to inoculate society against propaganda and develop those kind of technologies and methods. Well, Ukraine is at the forefront uh, of that effort, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I would say that uh, the West has started to learn from Ukraine in that regard. Um, I mean, for us, it was... <laughs> always obvious who russians are uh, and we were literally screaming all the time you know guys look this is a major major risk like how can you not see it i don't know especially after you know uh so russia started hybrid warfare i would say to on the west back and the active phase of it back in 2008 uh, so after the failed bucharest summit of nato uh, ukraine and georgia weren't given you know a clear yes to join uh then the invasion in georgia happened then when invasion in georgia happened it was super clear that you invasion in ukraine will happen someday um so yeah all those failures i'm well fortunately we're seeing now the west realizing all that finally you know uh but um yeah ukraine can be a leader in, in in this we are literally witnessing this on a day-to-day basis i don't know for how many years it depends on how you count you can count like even 400 years back to 17th century if you want so it's uh yeah for us we we know ins and outs uh but if you're interested i'm I'm sure like you know as a um, as a professional you're probably aware of the concept of disinformation uh which is a kgb concept there is a really cool book uh, written by former head of uh, Romanian uh, intelligence who fled to the US in 1984, I think. It's called disinformation. Uh, um, it's uh, uh, it really opens your eyes on 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 how Soviet Union and now Russia is uh, mm. of of their methodology of you know uh, propag- worldwide propaganda, and it's really surprising how overarching it is mm. uh, i haven't
0: read that one i've i've seen a number of videos and read a number of other books by uh kgb defectors mm-hmm. uh again Don't, where yes. they describe active measures and mm-hmm. what's involved and it's mm-hmm. it's an extraordinary um i say quite quite clever in some instances but it's an extraordinary cynical set of ideas and techniques isn't it
1: well, yeah, there is this uh, whole other world, which is an intelligence world, which functions uh, mostly without emotion, yeah, with pure cynical calculation. Um, uh, it all depends, you know, on the ultimate aim which you believe in, whether you believe in autocracy or democracy. Uh, um so for them they do believe in what they're doing for some reason i have no idea how they they came up with that's why they think it makes sense at all but uh, yeah that's <laughs> uh yeah that that's what they're doing uh, anyway check this check out this book i it, it, definitely well.
0: check that out i mean i know we're we're approaching the end but one question i also wanted to ask is this key infrastructure that the technological innovations you're describing and the technological industries. Now, of course, I don't know really how serious it is. But of course, Moscow did make an attempt to kickstart its own mini version of Silicon Valley in uh, Skorkova, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, you can definitely deride that it hasn't been particularly successful. But what I wanted to, to ask is, in a state that does not have a independent judiciary that does not have, you know, an evolution of civil society um, like Ukraine has developed. uh, And I know the judicial reforms, whereas they're not perfect, they are proceeding and creating the foundation that is required for technological innovation, but also there has been corruption, but of course that's also being tackled. I mean, how important is it this judicial reform and tackling corruption to create a stable foundation for technological innovation. And, and you know if we point the finger at Russia, is their technological revolution unlikely to happen because of the lack of these things?
1: Definitely. Well, my initial expertise is law, actually. So I graduated first as a lawyer. So I definitely understand the importance of a proper judicial system. Um, for startups themselves, it doesn't apply that much. Why? Because again, they're almost every, all the startups are global. They're usually registered in an investor-friendly jurisdiction. Um, so in, the startups that are going to US are usually registered in Delaware, because the courts in Delaware um, are super favorable to investors, and you can get an injunction, an injunction relief, or any court order really fast, like within a matter of days um of course the development of the judicial system on the ground like in Ukraine is the main factor that holds you know proper ukrainian development but now hopefully with the eu candidacy nomination and with everything that is going on geopolitically you know the reform will happen faster and will be more efficient than it would have been otherwise. Uh, I do believe it will happen. I do believe Ukrainian nation will not uh, be able to close its eyes you know on uh, corrupt people in the government trying to you know hold us back because what and that's actually going back to our previous discussion. So the way of Russian active measures and influence on Ukraine has always been promoting corruption. That has been a strategy all the time. Everything that they need to do is to promote the same system as they have, you know, either having useful idiots or just simple corrupt people that are becoming useful idiots, not knowingly. The key, yeah, if we won't be able, you know, to win strategically in the long term if we don't make it
0: happen, that's... And that's like kryptonite isn't it to uh, to <laughs> technological superman it, it's basically the minute you have nepotism and corruption on that scale which then percolates down through all layers of society i mean it's my belief that that kills off innovation um and that's maybe you know one of the reasons why china's tech revolution is starting to stall because of political interference nepotism and you know promotion within a, a self-serving elite
1: yeah Again, it comes to you know the ultimate aim of if to make it simple, it's yeah, what we how we define it now: democracy versus autocracy, right? But uh, the the uh, any technology that is developed should be developed, you know, in my opinion. And these are not just you know nice words. How would you hear it about in you know in Silicon Valley? Uh, it's like a uh, trivial phrase now you know, changing the world by doing something. But it should, you know, what, what's the point? That's the whole essence of, of, you know, humanity is to change the world and make it better and not to destroy it, you know. And what's, what, and what's happening now is that, well, I don't see, you know, how, you know, the current geopolitical situation brings that result it bring, you know, what it could bring is the, uh, you know, the end of humanity faster rather than just, uh, you know, uh, rather than us going to space and thriving, you know, in other uh, dimensions or universes. Mm. Just,
0: uh, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, my, my, my last question really is, is forward-looking. Um, and let's look forward to a scenario where uh, you, Ukraine triumphs. Um, what do you see as the sort of future Developments of the tech sector, which is going to become the most vibrant areas, and what influence is tech and innovation going to have on the Ukrainian economy as the country reconstructs?
1: Definitely, there's going to be massive investment into infrastructure and all uh, related sectors, so energy, uh, enterprise automation, uh, renewables, of course, because Russia has did destroy a lot of renewable energy sources and clean tech will be a major you know uh, angle of, of the reconstruction then those be technologies uh, that are naturally you know um, on a good level in ukraine such as agritech uh, biotech defense tech uh, and of course everything related to maths and uh, so ai cyber security that will thrive um material science actually ukraine has been really strong in material science historically and in various chemicals and uh, chemical compounds and fuels um and all that is you know, yeah it's is based on on the scientific schools that ukraine still has uh, in math physics chemistry radio electronics um so um hopefully you know uh, the so maybe i'm an optimist but i do believe that we can make good of this war at least you know in jump starting our technological industry and and you know our development because uh, we we need we we do need to catch up you know with the west in, in you know in economical sense i don't think uh, i think we in societal sense we did catch up for sure. Um, so yeah, we just need to balance that out with uh, with faster economic development,
0: and of course, uh, you know, people coming home will have a variety of experiences. Um, those who've who've been uh, forced to live abroad, and and. It seems that there's going to be a potentially a new cohesion as well that Ukraine, um, despite you know a thirty year evolution with various bumps in the road, uh, I've heard many people say that never before as a nation has Ukraine been so sort of united um and more moving in the same kind of direction as a people,
1: yeah, yeah, for sure. And well, people will come back. You can start seeing. You see people starting to come back already uh, for various reasons, both bureaucratic and psychological. But um, yeah, I do believe most of the Ukrainians that flood will come back because um, it's our land. We all feel that we need to contribute, you know, uh, to restore what we had and make it better. And we do feel the sense of unity. Um, it's it's really overarching. <laughs> um, so it's. It's funny how it's happening, but uh, yeah, uh, that's something we'll never forget.
0: Mm. Well, Dennis, I mean, this has been hugely insightful. Uh, I love talking to you about technology, and I really wish you uh, the best in the innovations that you're bringing to an incredibly futuristic sector uh, with Adam. Um, and, Thank yeah, I, I watch your, your developments and successes with uh, with great interest.
1: Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. for having me.